Okay, this morning we're just going to share a few scriptures here. And uh, <clears throat> I'm going to read uh, again. I'm just going to read from uh, Judges 14. And then I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 12th chapter. So, I'm going to turn to Judges 14 and read from there. All right. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> this, is the, this is the story of uh, Samson, and he was a man of great physical strength. And he was a judge. So a lot of times, before there were other men <clears throat> to come in, and, and function in a proper way before God, they didn't have kings or anything like that at this particular time. So there are judges that God raised up. And one of them was Samson. And I'll just read from the 14th chapter, verse 1, it says, And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughter of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother, and said, I have seen a woman of Timnath, of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of your own brethren? Of your brethren? Or among all my people? That you should go to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines. And Samson said unto his, his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion <clears throat> against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath, and they came to the vineyards of Timnath, and behold, a young lion roared <clears throat> against him, met him, and roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore it as he would have torn a kid, a small calf, and he had nothing in his hand. But he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And, when he, and he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after a time he returned to take her, and he returned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And there was a swarm of bees <clears throat> and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands, took the honey, and went on eating, and came to his father and mother, and he gave to them, and they did eat. But he told them not that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down unto the woman, and Samson made a feast. For so used the, the young men, they used to do this. And it came to pass when they saw him that they brought him thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said unto them, <clears throat> I will show you forth a, a riddle unto you, and if you can certainly declare it <clears throat> me within the seven days of the feast and, and, and find out the answer, then I will give you thirty sheets or thirty uh, cloths or, and, and thirty changes of garments. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if you cannot declare it to me, then you will give me 30 sheets and 30 chains of garments. 
And they said unto him, Put forth the riddle that we may hear it. And this is the verse I really want to get to in verse 14. And he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not, in those three-day period, in three days, figure out that riddle. verse I want to get to here is this. Again, in Judges 14 and verse 14. Out of the eater came forth meat, and but here, out of the strong came forth sweetness. Then here, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1, it says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether, it was in the, whether I was in the body or out of it, I cannot tell but God knows. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. And obviously he's knowing him in Christ. God is declaring to Paul about who he is in Christ and who, who Christ is in him into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell God knows. And I want us to look at those in verse uh, 2 of Second Corinthians 12, God knows. And then, again, he's saying, again, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell, but God knows. And that's the important thing that God knows. Many times we have said that the most important thing about us is that God knows us. Because when we know and come to a place in circumstances and situations that God truly knows us and everything about us, then we know ourselves in him through Christ. Verse 4, he says, How? that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it was not even allowable, not even a way that I could do it for a man to utter those things. And obviously only Christ is the full utterance, the full thought of God, and it takes God, the Holy Spirit, to utter the truth about who Christ is to us. And that's what it means when it says that God knows. Of such a one, in verse 5, will I... Will I glory, yet not of myself? I will not glory. Notice that? I won't glory in who I am in the flesh, but I'm going to glory in who I am in Christ. But in that place, in my infirmities, for though I would desire to glory, I will not be a fool. What he's saying is, and for any of us, we want to, at times when we're in the flesh, we glorify the flesh. But he said, of myself, the flesh, I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I will not be a fool. And that's what a fool is. And you can see what a, a fool is in Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. A fool. For I will say the truth as opposed to foolishness of the flesh. And that truth is who Christ is in John 14 and verse 6. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he sees, sees me to be, or that he hears of me, a man in Christ. It's all grace. Unless I should be exalted above measure, and that's the flesh. Flesh does two things, and we can tell when we're not functioning in who we are in Christ experientially based upon our position, we will see that in the flesh we will exalt ourselves or think way more highly of ourselves than we should or way more lowly of ourselves that we should. And that's why <clears throat> we've been taught 
And men have taught me that, that I have, by the grace of God, studied in the 1800s, where in 1840, a certain particular individual man said, God gave him the truth about what humility is. And humility is not thinking too highly of myself, and it's not thinking too lowly of myself. It's not thinking of myself at all. <clears throat> I am no longer in Christ the object Christ is. And so that's what he was saying. And lest that, lest that I, in verse 7, should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. And notice that even the flesh can take the word of God to exalt itself, even above the one who that word, and that word only, is descriptive of, Christ himself. So lest I should, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times, that it may depart from me. And of course, this happened many, many times. Many, many times, and it does to us. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect, what? In weakness. In weakness. See? The honey was taken out of the lion that was strong, but it was taken out of him. And so that we don't get weak, we can partake of the honey. And that's the result of the work that in Christ when he has, and he has destroyed the power of the enemy. We see that in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And then we see the realization of it and what it is based upon in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 to 14. We see clearly that, and we can see it, that God always has to succor us or draw us to Christ because we're weak. And when Christ is not my strength, there, this is where the exaltation of the flesh will come in. We begin to exalt the flesh. And then in, in that, we will begin to compare ourselves with others. And we know that in the flesh, no one can ever live up to us in that exaltation. So he said, for my strength, in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, is complete in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then what am I? I am strong, and that's Joel 3 and, and verse 10 that Paul is quoting here through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can even see this. Even we can see in Daniel chapter 3, the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they refused to bow down to the king who was stronger than them, he was furious. We see it again, Daniel 3, 17 to 25, he was so angry. And boy, the enemy gets angry at us when we function in Christ. And he does everything he can to take us away experientially from looking to Christ, our strength, so that we're, that we're weak. And then he takes advantage of that weakness and that advantage that it is and that place that Satan has in us, but we're not of it, is the flesh. But here, those three 
Hebrew boys, they were cast into the furnace, which was heated seven times even hotter. That was the rage and anger of the king under the influence of Satan, raging against them because they refused to bow down. They refused to take a lifestyle and others that have lifestyles that are completely opposed to God and the creative order, they say to him, we'll use them to rage against us. Rage against us. And so it was heated seven times hotter. They were thrown in there, bound in their clothes and bound with, with ropes that were strong, that were the strongest men under that king, Nebuchadnezzar, under the king, that bound them so strong and threw them in. And while they were in there, while they were in there, the king said, asked his governors, he asked them and said to them, Did you, didn't you throw three in there? Yes, he said three. Yes, we threw three in there. But why is it that I see the fourth man? I see a fourth man there. And of course, in that in the type of this particular illustration is that no matter where we are, what place that God leads us to, it may be a fiery furnace, but he never leaves us alone. He's with us. The fourth man that was in the furnace was a type of Jesus Christ. That's what it was. And many believe like, like it was a theothony, that Christ was with them right in the furnace. The flames did not even touch them. They were walking in the midst. And even those strong men that threw them in there, the furnace was so hot that it burnt them up. But it didn't touch those three Hebrew boys, young men, because Christ was with them in the midst of the fiery furnace. And I don't know, fiery furnace can be also the trial, the trial that we're in. Maybe we're waiting for God. And we never, he never allows us to wait for him without him being there with us while we wait. And he's teaching us, he's teaching us tremendous patience and grace and, and, and again, kindness and humility uh, by these things. And he's showing us <clears throat> these tremendous things. It never says, it never says that those three Hebrew young men never saw the fourth man. It didn't. You know why? Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, makes it clear, they weren't walking by sight. They had an absolute faith, meaning they believed God. You know, when we pray for things, do we actually believe God and are we steadfast and immovable? In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, or does the sight of the circumstance by natural sight begin to dictate us, and even our prayers just become a form of doubt, but we pray anyway. It never says they did, but it does say those that walked by sight looked in and saw the fourth man with those three. They were cast into the fiery furnace. You know, that's what it says in 1 Peter 4.12. Why do you think it's strange? Christians, a lot of Christians think it's so strange by the fiery trial that is to try them. Because that trial, that fire, is not only about them. It is definitely about them. Because remember, Christ was with them in an intimate way, even if they couldn't feel it or see it by natural sight. But others can. Others can. 
And so <clears throat> he is there and he is there. Why? Because he has said in Joshua 1, 5, Matthew 28, verse 20, and in Hebrews 13, 5, that he would never, ever, no, never, ever leave us that are his, nor forsake us. He is with you. He is with me in the trial. And what does it bring out? What does it bring out? Who does it bring out? Does it bring out a faith? Whether we see it or not, thing that we ask God and pray for, whether we see it or not, do we believe it? Well, the furnace will reveal it. <clears throat> and he's there with us. It doesn't matter. Remember, we, we stated, I think it was yesterday, that the things that Paul did not count his own life dear unto him and those things that he went through in 2 Corinthians of the 11th chapter in verses 23 to 25, all those things. You know, even when Paul said there was three days and three nights, I was floating on a piece of wreckage for three days and three nights. The fact of the matter is, did it matter if Christ was with him? If Christ was with him, did it matter? Because Christ was with him. Of course, that's how he made it. Whatever the place that you and I are brought into, doesn't matter. Whatever that place is, doesn't matter. That I am brought into, what do we find? We find sweetness. You see, there was a young lion, obviously, sent to try and do away with Samson because he was going to do something for God. That lion came. And that says the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he tore that thing like it was a young calf to pieces. You know, we have an enemy in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. That's why it says this. This is very, very clear in our circumstances and our situations and in our thought life. In 1 Peter 5, notice how it starts. Verse 6, it says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. He may, not the flesh, not sight, not trying to make things happen. No, that he may exalt you in his time, in due time, because there's anything in Genesis 18 and verse 14, too hard for God. In, Deut in, in Jeremiah 32, 17 to 19, is there anything too difficult or too wonderful for God? Again, in Job 42 and verse 2, is there anything, anything at all, too mighty or too wonderful for God to do? And so again, doesn't matter, does not matter. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, triple salutation. I will never, no, never, no, never in any other way ever leave you nor forsake you. I would never do that. God would have to forsake his son to forsake us. It's never going to happen. It never does. But the trial brings out the reality of what I am depending on or who I am depending on. And so we see that sweetness came right out of it sweetness. And that place became a place for those bees to do what they do in, in the performance of how God designed them to supply not only Samson to give him strength, honey, but to give others strength. And there's always <clears throat> sweetness that God wants to bring out. And that sweetness, boy, we know it is Christ and him only. He is the sweet one. And oh, how God, and boy, we have to learn this through our circumstances, to never let Christ, who has first place, to have second place in us. Remember, <clears throat> he's not seeking to have first place in us. He has that by virtue of who he is, Christ. He's God. 
He's the God-man in Christ. He is that. And he has first place by virtue of who he is. We don't want to give him second place. And you know what second place is? It's the flesh. That's what it is in any of us. He doesn't want, to, want us to, to allow Christ to have second place. It is to be nothing else. And this is what God's bringing us to. And our circumstances, our situations, our trials, all bring this out. It is to be nothing else than Christ in you and you in Christ. That's what every circumstance and situation becomes the opportunity for us, no matter what it looks like by sight. Because we walk by faith, absolute dependence, and not by sight. And that's why in Luke 18, 1, we should always depend, always pray, and not faint, not give up, not quit mentally, emotionally, and physically, but most of all spiritually. And it's all, Christ is with us all the way through this wilderness journey. You see, it's a wilderness journey. We don't settle down in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. We're strangers and pilgrims. We are strangers here. We are strangers here, going through here on this world system. He's to always be, and we're to let him, and that speaks of our will. You know, when it says in Colossians 3, in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching you and admonishing you and giving you all wisdom and understanding. And that's what let means. Let him always be the only object before your mind. The only object at all. The only one. Refuse to see anything except him. Refuse to see or to view anything. Anything that is not of the eyes of dependence on him. Refuse to see it. Because having him in that way you will find the strength for everything. But you know he has to make us weak. The very taste of our weakness should cause us to link our mind and our emotions, everything, with the strength that is in Christ and him alone. And with that one, Christ himself, whose strength is made complete in our weakness. You see, God has to make us weak. He has to make us weak. And he can make every single bitter thing sweet. That's what it says in Proverbs, the 27th chapter. I believe it's verse 7. Proverbs 27, verse 7. Every, he makes every bitter thing sweet. The enemy comes in and wants to attack. Right away, he's dealt with already. And out of that circumstance comes the sweetness the sweetness that Christ is, the sweetness. And see, even what those bees perform to, to supply the strength in, their, in Samson's weakness, he didn't do it himself. It was of God that did that very clearly. And so it's made complete. And here's the thing. Wherever the flesh appears, and remember, the place for Satan in my experience, is in the flesh, but not in Christ. That's Romans 8, 9. We are not in the flesh, but in Christ. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you, obviously, because you could not be born again in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 without the Holy Spirit being resident in you. And so we see very clearly that wherever the flesh appears, that is the area that Satan can touch. 
And unless we judge ourselves, and this is brought out in 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, unless we do, unless we judge ourselves, that experience can turn to, to, to the very grief, bring in grief and bitterness. Bitterness. And we want to get into that on Thursday and possibly even Wednesday night. Bitterness. And then we get in a circumstance. And when we look at things with natural sight, we even, and when we're not hungry for Christ, those bitter things don't become a place and an opportunity for the sweetness of Christ to be brought out. You know, the light shines brighter, much brighter in the most darkest places. The light shines brighter. That's what it says in Isaiah 45 and verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness in hidden riches in secret places where would, would be, you wouldn't even think that you may know that I am the Lord, your one and only object, your one and only place of strength. And so instead of functioning in the, in the flesh, and the flesh is where Satan can get us to live in dishonor of God. Doubt. You know, even when doubt, what is doubt? It's sin. It's not trusting. So, but thank God in, in Romans 14 and verse 22, <clears throat> Happy is the man that condemns not himself in the thing that he allows. In the thing that he allows. And he that doubts is damned if he eat. Who's damning him? Who's making the, the, the trial of the circumstance, the situation to be bitter? It's the enemy. It's the enemy through his lies. He doesn't operate in power. He operates with wiles, lies, with lies. And he, he wants us to live in dishonor to God. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. <clears throat> if we don't yet have a thorn, <laughs> if we don't yet, and where was the thorn to be located? In the flesh. But it could, because it was a constant reminder, constant reminder that when we're weak and Christ is not the source and power of our strength, when it's not, then the flesh operates under the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. 2. <clears throat> under him, through his lies. And as we close this this morning, if we don't have that thorn just yet, if we don't have it now, you can be sure that God in his love will give it to us. Because you see here, Paul had all these revelations and this tremendous truth, but to keep him from functioning in the flesh and using those revelations to exalt himself and not constantly be humble, our only place before God to receive grace. In 1 Peter 5, 6 and James 4, verse 6, if he didn't, then he would function in the flesh. And there's where we get all that <clears throat> foolishness, the foolishness of the flesh. Even the thought of foolishness in Proverbs 24 and verse 9 is sin. Think about it. The thought of anything foolish outside of Christ or fellowshipping with him, the very thought is foolishness. And what is that? It's called sin. It's not who we are in Christ, but it's what we can function in. But thank God we, he even gives us a place back to him through confessing it in 1 John 1 and verse 9. But here's the thing. Why does God give us the thorn? To make you and I realize just how weak we truly are. Even with all those revelations and truths and mighty foundational truths and 
all the truths that are in the Bible that are ours in Christ. If he doesn't make us weak, the flesh will take opportunity and exalt itself. And you know sooner or later, we know that the pride of the flesh that deceives us in Obadiah verse 3, we know that in Proverbs 16 and verse 18, pride goes before what? Destruction and a haughty spirit lifting itself up before a fall. We exalt ourselves in the flesh. The enemy wants to do that for who you and I are in Christ because he wants to bring us up so he can fly us down, throw us down. And a haughty spirit before a fall. But thank God, thank God for these thorns. Thank God. So he has to make us realize experientially through circumstances, through situations, through jobs, through people we meet, negative and positive, doesn't matter. He's always teaching us how weak we are and it always becomes an opportunity when we submit, when we receive it, to literally honor God through Christ being in us by the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the flesh, acting in complete dishonor to God. And so... The fact of the matter is, how, where is all the shame in the Christian located? Is it in Christ in Hebrews 2.11? He's not ashamed to call us brethren. No, where is it? It's in the flesh. That's what the enemy wants Christians' experiences to be because he can't touch their position in 1 John 5 and verse 18b. The wicked one touches us not. That's our position. But he goes after the area where we least operate in faith, and that's complete dependence upon Christ. That's the area where he can get us in the flesh so he can cause us to be ashamed and point the finger at us and tell us that's who we are. I know of so many, the Word of God, I know what it's done in me. It has so saved me, so saved me. I know the enemy before, and, and this is true with any, us, with any of us, before any of us had proper preaching and teaching, how the enemy was seeking to kill us, how he wanted to destroy us. In John 10, 10a, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but then we have that abundant teaching, those revelations about who we are in Christ. And, and then have those abundance, the abundance of those revelations that he gave to Paul just and no different than us, the abundance of those revelations. But then to have it with others and to have it more abundantly is such an incredible thing. And that's the thing the enemy hates. That's what he's going after. He's going after. He cannot touch our position. He, try, he can only go after our experience. So what is my experience? If it's not dependence... Humility, constantly, in, in, in realizing weakness. You see that in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Lay aside, uh, lay aside every weight, it says. Notice that? Lay aside every weight and, and, and the sin which so easily entangles us. It can. Lay aside every weight because we're weak. We're weak and we can't bear even one thing apart from Christ. Because without him in John 15, 1 to 5, we can do absolutely what? Nothing. And the flesh profits in Romans 7, 18, what? Nothing. And the flesh means when I function in the flesh, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2? Without love I am what? When I don't experience who I am and how God sees me in Christ, what does the enemy convince me that I am at that moment? Nothing. Nothing. And what is the prophet in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3? It profits me what? Nothing. 
And that's why Jesus said, as we close in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit that quickens. It's the Holy Spirit that takes the things of Christ in John 16, 13, and 14 and shows them unto us. John 6, 63, it is the Holy Spirit that quickens, brings life, imparts, brings the impartation of life that's ours in our position, okay, in our position, that's been imputed to us. Our, our position, and this is the doctrine of imputation, we have been, we have, when we receive Christ, we have imputed or put to our account all the perfect righteousness of who Christ is in us and who we are in Him. But to have it imparted through preaching and teaching, and there's where the enemy comes in again, to get Christians to not hear preaching and teaching, not enough to use every single excuse under the sun why we can't. And that's again the enemy. But that's what he does. He brings this truth into the truth about who we are into our experience so that we don't function in the flesh and function in shame. Not to function in shame. That's why over and over again, the sevenfold hearing of the church, all the way through church history in Revelations 2 and 3, a sevenfold hearing is hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Those that are Christ. And so we have so much to be thankful for. We're never alone, never. We're never, we're never, we never have to be lonely. There's times when we, he does get us alone. Boy, he deals with us, doesn't he? When we're alone and no one else, in those fleshly areas that we wouldn't want a single person to even ever see, that's when he's dealing with us when we're, when we're alone with him. And it's good to be, we never have to be lonely as a Christian. It's good at times to be alone with him. That doesn't mean we don't participate as a joint and a local assembly. But there's times when we're going to be alone and those are the times when he separates us from the flesh, those things that we wouldn't even want a person to see, that he sees in Psalm 90 verse 8 and he deals with us and that's love dealing with us and even when we don't deal with it, then love, chastising love through grace, and many times chastisement is the first step of grace with love flowing through it. When we don't deal with those issues, in 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, he steps in and does it. He steps right in. When even the backsliding doesn't correct us in Jeremiah 2 and verse 19, it's good to be alone because two things, when we're alone, when we're alone, there's two things that only God the Holy Spirit can show us. He's showing us that when we're functioning in the flesh experientially, he's showing us what that is and how bitter and hateful and despicable it is. And how if that area is not dealt with, in Hebrews 12 and verse 15, it begins to be a poison affecting others, that bitterness that's in us, that's in the flesh. He makes every bitter thing Sweet. We want to get into this in, in, in a greater detail. And this is all has to do with our spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, 10 uh, to 17, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 through 6. It all has to do with that. You know, everything about it has to do with that. And so we can see very, very clearly through the preciseness of the word that it's only God, the Holy Spirit, will show me when I'm functioning in the flesh without condemnation, but tons of conviction, so that I get right back into a place of functioning 
right in a place in Christ where God is loving me? Is there ever a time that God the Father is not loving Christ seated at his right hand? Is there ever a time in our present reality that we're not located in him positionally? And so he's always dealing with us experientially in his love, which is anticipative, and that thorn was, was anticipative love in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7 for Paul and for you and I. It's anticipative. So that we can glory in our infirmities, and the only time we ever do that is through grace because it's an opportunity for Christ to come right in. And so what a beautiful counsel that God is giving all of us this morning. He doesn't, there's no shame in how he views us in Hebrews 2.11, none. The only way to deal with shame in us in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12 is through having a right form through the word of God and that form in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13 is my true image in Christ. And Father, we thank you so much for your loving, your anticipative love, never any suspicion there, and your prevenient grace, grace that is operating even when my will hasn't yet submitted. That's the thorn. That's why the thorn. So, Father, we thank you and praise you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, so much. In Jesus' name, amen.